gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 58 for Friday, February 13th, 2015. Um, this week we are reviewing two movies. First up is Fifty Shades of Grey, which I haven't seen, so I'm going to quiz uh, David and Patches until they're so embarrassed they can't talk about it anymore. Tickle uh, us, tickle us oh, with your questions. Is that a thing? Is that was just tickling? Know. Is this movie about tickling and not don't, sex at all? Don't punish us. Don't I'm sorry. don't I'm spoil sorry. it. Um, and then we're going to talk about Kingsman: The Secret Service, which uh, basically has nothing in common with Fifty Shades of Grey, which is probably why they're releasing it on the same weekend. First up. Fifty Shades of Grey. David, what is this movie about? <laughs> uh, it's about it's about love. It it's is about actually love. about romantic love. Are they actually in love? Well, this well, is the whole we, crux of the film. I guess you oh. have not read the 100 million copy selling The fact that book. you assume that I have read it. I don't stupid. assume. I don't assume. I know a lot of women who have read E.L. James's well, holy text. Listen, I, I will. Let's let's say what Fifty Shades of Grey, the film, is not, which is, for the most part, Fifty Shades of Grey, the book. You don't know that. Uh, have you read I it? Do, I do know that, yes. I, have, I read. What? Uh, I read the first half of the first book and the first half of the second book in the last uh, few days. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, this is a you know, it's like that scene in Boogie Nights where they watch the first Jack. What's his last name? I always want to say Jack Horner. I don't know if that's right. Um, but they uh, watch Burt Reynolds' characters. That sounds right. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, it's f- characters' first movie, and they're like, you know, you made a real movie, Jack. Ricky Jay tells him, and I feel this way about Sam Taylor Johnson, Fifty Shades of Grey. But uh, so this, you know, the ex- hundred million. Novels sold, E.L. James <laughs> trilogy adapted from Twilight fan fiction, uh, and I think that part is sort of overplayed because while she may have simply, I don't know, uh, it's pretty ingrained in the feature film adaptation. I, it's the fan uh, fiction element. Uh, no, oh, well, I mean, the, I, I it's, think it's, really it's, everything is so derivative of everything else. The fact that she started with these characters and began riffing on them from there. Um, One of the, yeah, her best the, friend in the movie looks just like Taylor Lautner. This the, is it's exactly like the genes are there. Okay, that wow, that character looks Lander. nothing like Taylor Lautner. Um I think he's also like Latino American. Uh but it's fine. Um anyway, we're, uh the is Latino American I'm so tired. Latino, you saw say Latino. You're uh, uh, yes. going to offend someone. Let's Anyway, prepared. uh so it's not it's not the uh it's not in the realm of the senses. It is not which is a you know a very uh, close adaptation to Fifty Shades of Grey in its own way. This is not a constant fuck fest. This is a real movie. Uh, it is a romantic comedy about somebody who falls in love with a, uh, or it plays like somebody, a romantic comedy about somebody who falls in love with a serial killer. Um, it juggles in tones between romantic comedy and erotic drama, very soft core, sex positive, completely untitillating erotic drama. Um, but I might argue there. <laughs> it's uh, Quite it's, Come on. it's very... So, no, it's. I mean, it's it's titillating in the way that Cinemax's programming works. was in the uh, in the mid nineties. Hey, I mean, it's, that was titillating. That works for people. I could draw Dakota Johnson's breasts from memory right now, and uh, right, you're nothing, overexposed to internet porn. This is titillating. Uh, this is not remotely titillating, but 
Um, certain, and, and I'm only comparing it to the content of the novel. And of course, they can't translate to the screen because if they did, this would be considered pornographic by well, more people than probably considered pornographic as it stands. It would certainly not pass any sort of muster with the MPAA um, and the draconian policies, the puritanical policies that every ratings board in the world exercises. Um, they had to make serious fundamental changes to the text in, in its – in its form, not necessarily the story it tells, but how it tells it in order to to make this into a film. They have to take away all the internal monologue that provides for the book's uh, sauciest details, um, sometimes literally, as when Anastasia Steele is talking about her uh, inner goddess dancing to merengue and salsa and shit. Uh, but, Yikes. Um, Yikes. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's not in the is, movie. No, that's oh, okay. what, exactly what I'm right, saying, okay, yeah. is that uh, they have to step outside of that character's head for the most part to make the movie. It's an external uh, experience and, and feels sort of uh, from an objective point of view. Um, there is no running voiceover. There's no monologue uh, that you get in, in sense of her interior monologue. And as such, it plays like a tepid romance. And really, it's her – it's a lot like Duke of Burgundy, which we discussed on the show a little while ago about um, these two people with incompatible desires and the sort of fundamental tragedy in that. And she, he is really – he's a billionaire, lives in Seattle, and he uh, is 27, which is revolting. And he has a big thing for S&M, and it's the only way he really knows to connect with another person. She is a virgin who uh, – you know, this is like in, jumping right into the deepest part of the deep end. And uh, they do their best to understand one another and meet halfway. And that's what I found refreshing about the film is that it's not a Ben Stiller romantic comedy where uh, there's a fundamental misunderstanding and a lie that has to be perpetuated so that the other person doesn't find out who their partner uh, really is. And then there's a run to the airport and they clarify what's happened after a terrible coincidence. This is just two people in their own outlandish, completely over-the-top way trying their best to reconcile their differences and understand one another. And uh, at least in this installment, it, it plays out uh, tragically and in its own way, uh, sincerely. And I enjoyed it for that. Tragically. Interesting. It is quite tragic. And, uh, I mean, David, I'm, I'm, I'm interested that you read the second book because, uh, I had no idea where the series could really go, especially as I was watching this movie. I'm like, wait, there's, how could there possibly be two more after these? Um, it involves like guns and shit. I guess, you know, really? she, runs out, she runs out of story pretty fast. Oh, okay. There's also, so the, movies, uh, the sequels are going to be horrible. There are a number of major characters who uh, really would have pushed this story into camp and even deeper into melodrama had they not been excised from the uh, the, the, the adaptation. I think that's what strikes me here is that I really went into the movie expecting camp being the only way to kind of execute this thing for a mass audience or for any amount of forgiveness for, for what this book seems to have how it's poisoned people, uh, the way that they people talk about it. I'm, I'm not, I can't say from experience. It just there's such a negative reaction to these books that I didn't know what to really expect from the movie. Like, can it possibly be good if it's not attempting schlock? And um, I, I was really surprised, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, mostly because it's it's really playing with the dominance and submission 
role, dominant and submissive roles, um, and and that both characters get to play both of those roles at different times. I mean, Jamie Dornan's Christian Grey is obviously into the physical uh, dominance, uh, but Dakota Johnson's and Anastasia Steele is, is into an, an emotional and a romantic dominance that really strikes him, and he has this, will he submit to her in a way? And it's this dynamic that's, as you said, David, extremely refreshing. Well, she realizes, she, it is it is funny in its own way at times, she realizes that she has a power over him, uh, essentially through denial and asserting herself and realizing that um, she, in her, she can play the submissive role in their sex games, but that doesn't mean that she necessarily has to assume the submissive role um, in the relationship. And I think, you know, it's this very didactic process by which uh, he is sort of thaws because he's a, a robot, essentially, when the movie begins. He's like, it's like gray finger. Uh, he lives in a building made out of gray. All of his assistants were only gray. These like leggy models that he's working for him. Sounds All of like his ties like are a, gray. Like a Bond villain. He is. He's but, like uh, a Bond villain. but she Speaking humanizes him and he humanizes her in her own way. Uh, you know, I, I think we're grading this on a scale. I had a ton of fun watching this, but, you know, there, there are very recent movies like The Duke of Burgundy that treat uh, very oh. similar subject matter in much more compelling okay. I don't, cinematic ways. I don't think I'm grading this on a scale. I want to abolish that idea because while I enjoyed Duke of Burgundy, that is a, a deep impressionistic uh, view of, of this situation with um, an even more – you know, uh, outlier type of relationship that's that's two women. And this is uh, obviously more like traditional uh, – by traditional, I really mean steeped in like film history. I felt like I was watching a movie from 1993 while watching this movie. Um, and it was kind of – On Cinemax. Yes, like on in like a, like a fatal attraction kind of way? Yeah. I mean like Jade, David Caruso and Jade. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't get to see this type of, of movie made very – Often or or made very well. I really am fond of both of these actors. I know that T- Dakota Johnson has been getting a lot of praise for um, playing Anastasia with, with a bit of wit and and this kind of shy, flirtatious <clears throat> nature. And I she reminded me of Kristen Wiig at the beginning of this movie. Her her wow. like, mumbling form of comedy was it's it's pretty funny. But I I even have an appreciation of what J B Dorden is doing in this movie. He is a little robotic. I mean by design, but. He he's able to crack that. He he really can show how this guy who thinks um, his sex life works one way and watches as it's kind of dissolved by this woman who enters his life. Like he can't handle the fact that he finally has someone he wants to spank. You know, in his red room uh, with whips and ticklers, and this is what he does to women. But for some reason, this woman is going to be different, and he wants to treat her right, quote unquote. And I, I find that uh, he really is able to create an arc there and and sell it. You know, I don't think he's totally wooden or robotic. I mean, in the beginning, he's really driven to kind of have these two portions of his life. You know, who knows what his business is? He's always on the phone, <laughs> or never on the phone, really. We see him at his office once. And then later in the movie, he's like, uh, the business is out of control. Like something horrible is happening. I have to leave. And you have absolutely no way. He's in yeah, telecommunications he's, or something. He's, he's you know, as close to <laughs> a J- a Jay Gatsby as he is yeah. to uh, whatever the fuck the but character's he's name is to, in like, Twilight. But those layers back Edward. with elegance. Edward. It's not like there aren't really big twists in this movie. And there's not a lot of like pushing square blocks into into round, you know. Oh, there's holes. a lot of pushing okay. things into holes. Well, actually, there's not because uh, Anastasia's not into that. <laughs> this but, movie could be rated PG-13. It re- I okay, mean, obviously. Yeah. No, it couldn't. Let's talk about 
about no. let's talk about the real thing everyone wants to know about. Like, what are the sex scenes like? Listen, the I, sex I scenes are hot. I, you know, they're very uh, attractive people, um, and they are lit very beautifully. I. I find it difficult to talk about this without it sounding like, oh, my life is so uh, <laughs> so erotic that this is, you know, like I'm trying to put on a front. Uh, and I really, You're I think... You're like David. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that this is just more of a reflection of of what goes these days and, and just contrast to the content of the book. It's, well, it's very softcore stuff. Yes, you do see... Her topless quite a bit and occasional shots of her pubic hair or merkin or whatever it was. Uh, and you see the tiniest sliver of the top of his penis. Um, I, don't know, not, I don't know if that's true. Yeah, it's not You're all about seeing slivers of penises. Not, not a reflection on the uh, size of his penis. Only More or less than you. seen in Gone Girl. Much less. less, less much less. less, less. Uh, if at all. Um, but it's, it's, you know, what, I, what bothered me about the sexuality is not exactly the parts of the anatomy that they show, but the lack of clinical detail. It, Hollywood is still so afraid of showing women enjoying themselves, having pleasure. I mean, they cut away every time kidding? he begins to go down on her, and then he just cuts wow, into a shot of her not, topless that is, moaning. That is incorrect. It's, it That's is actually objectively incorrect. correct. No, that is, inc- that is, that is oh. not correct, because there is a great wide shot that is this kind of like haunting. It's a, the, That's one shot this. in the movie, and it is completely... Yes, because this movie builds to that. It's That's classic what Hollywood. Okay. That is not a... That is a beautiful shot. A beautiful she shot? is naked from behind in that shot. It's very, very wide, which speaks to my point. Um, and it's it's uh, a beautifully there are multiple shots like this. The, there are there are profile scenes of him going down on her and her screaming when, an orgasm. No, it's in it's bed. Yes, it is purely PG thirteen shit. When they cut to her topless, that's it. You don't see him. You don't see what he's doing to her, and she's just moaning in instant I think you're ecstasy. Doing a little disservice to what Sam Taylor Johnson. I think you're doing sexy. too much service to it. I will. Where I will is? I don't want to get too graphic here. But there, from the first sex scene, where like you know the actual sex scene, uh, there are so many things that happen in sex that that the any real erotic drama, let alone something adapted from something as salacious as this is, would give time to that this book, uh, this film uh, cuts. What like are you it, talking about? Just say what you're talking about. Yeah, no one well, knows what you're talking about. Yeah, I know. I, I just mean. I mean, like she. It begins with metaphors. Like she meets him. She in the first meeting scene, she is very turned on. She walks outside. It stops raining because she. it starts raining because she is wet. She's aroused. And that is the most explicit. It's the only time the movie ever allows her to be aroused ever in a meaningly, uh, meaningfully visceral way. And that carries to every Every element of the depiction of the six scenes are so uh, airbrushed in Hollywood. There's no reality to them. Okay, no, so if you watch like Don't Look like Now, if you watch movie. Watch oh Don't Look Now, there's not everything has to be like raw carnal... fucking for six minutes. Let me tell you. Well, let me let me step when in here. The character says, "I don't make love. I fuck." That is a direct quote from the movie. Yes, and they're <laughs> not making love like they're not billowing under white sheets. That's what making love in Hollywood is. Making love in Hollywood is not bringing someone into your sex chamber and having these kind of like fetishistic close-up shots of whips and chains and like and and 
uh, you know, whatever the rack that he puts her in. That is not Hollywood. I'm not a saying it's Duke of ice. Burgundy. Yeah, she he has a rack. Um, but the one thing I want to say about uh, where are the vaginal balls? Where is she the declines? Where? She declines the, the the genital clamps. Come on, aren't you no, listening? To no, this is all stuff that's in the book. This is all stuff that's okay, in the you book. You are warped by the book. Clear. Wait, I, I let me go to Sam Taylor Johnson's defense for one second before you. Cut I thought me she off did here. a great job with this, but it You're couldn't have worked as a movie. Come on, let let me let me step in here. So. As I said, this is not what Hollywood does traditionally. You may think it's Hollywood because it's glossy and because it's using close-ups uh, as its, its, its sensuality amplifier. And it's not just like putting a wide shot and, and get it punching in close for like her O face. And it's not raw fucking. It's may, maybe it's not true to his line that he doesn't make love, he, he fucks. But in, in terms of Hollywood, it is true to that. And the, all the shots, all the designs here with the sex, I mean, the fact that we get wide shots of them like naked up on each other and really going at it is kind of, I mean, that is, that is something. That's the next level of these types of movies. You it's just have me imagining the, MacGruber ghost sex. It is sounds- like MacGruber ghost sex, except actually <laughs> kind of sexy because these two have chemistry. And I want to say that, David, you, you briefly mentioned this, but there is a tremendous amount of pubic hair in this There's- movie. And I wait, stop, stop. I, I want to say that this, for me and for my brain and like the way I'm working when two movie characters are having sex, the way that this kind of transcends um, glossy Hollywoodness is when you start seeing like people with pubic hair and they're imperfect and then they're still having sex in these kind of like weird Imperfect? Ways. What kind of judgment is that? No, like imperfect. <laughs> like, in porn, nobody on. has pubic hair. Yes, in porn, no, no one has pubic hair. That's not true anymore. Okay, that is uh, not yeah, that is, that? <laughs> yeah, but also, also, you're giving, you're putting so much stock into like a few odd shots of pubic hair as no, if, oh, they've I, broken I through mean, the pubic window. That's by like, design. That's design. There's a threshold. This is, I, I really, I really don't want to sound like I am uh, so, <laughs> so jaded that, that it can't, and, and, you know, living in such a world of smut that this doesn't pass uh, some threshold for me. But I, I really challenge people out there who watch this movie to come back and think as if it pushed any sort of envelope whatsoever. The only thing that it does is put yeah, but what the most vanilla it, kind of S&M into the spotlight in the major Hollywood motion drama picture, which around is it, The character around it. This isn't – I mean these sex scenes don't exist in a vacuum. It's not just about these two people going into a room and the world falling – the world around them falling away. I mean they're bringing these characters that they establish in the interstitial scenes to the table in that. I mean, I'm not arguing comes, that. She comes my, as a virgin. Oh, wow, that's my really entire – <laughs> The entire thrust of my review uh, was that the movie is it's a much better film for what they had to do to accommodate for what they couldn't translate to the screen. I think it doesn't I, it doesn't mean that I think the sex needed to be as softcore as it is. However, I do think that it is actually a successful film because it doesn't dwell on the sex in the way that the movie the, the book does. Uh, right. but I do feel like it is very, very, very softcore. Look, I think I think it goes hard in the sex as far as an R rated studio movie does. And but I think it goes even harder in the romance and the chemistry and what two people can do and be kind of like in their own worlds. You know, Christian Grey is into BDSM and and Anastasia Steele is in, you know, she's in a vacuum too. I mean, she's never really had a sexual experience. And taking those and pushing those hard and and finding romance there. I mean, there's a scene, the whole thing with Christian is that he gets women to sign contracts to have sex with him. He you know the have, sex is good when you have to sign an NDA yeah. beforehand. 
<laughs> but and and this is kind of it's it seems goofy. I mean, it gets a laugh that he is going to have this contract, but it becomes a very important part of their relationship and of the movies. The the thrust again of the movie, and they have an amazing scene dinner together where they're going to hash out the details, a business meeting, and it's actually one of the more romantic elements in the film when they're talking about what they can and cannot do in the red room. And I just I loved that. I really thought they had a dynamic, and both of those actors pull it off. And that's why the sex scenes work so well, because they've kind of forged these intimate moments in public, in, in the real world. And then they can go to this room and suddenly everything seems dangerous. Everything's culminating here as he's like brushing her with this whip or he's really going to take her in this moment. Even if it looks I mean, if if I put it against Duke of Burgundy, it wouldn't hold up. It's not real. It's not dangerous. It's not sexy, I guess. But as a culmination of these dramatic moments, it works. I shouldn't see this. Culmination. Culmination. Do I have to see this movie? Uh, Um, No, probably not. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a a big – I don't know. It's an important moment in in pop culture in a way because this phenomenon of a book that people universally hate, it seems, uh, has has birthed something kind of wonderful. I mean, so if this movie is a big hit, which I think a lot of people expect it to be, like what, (coughs) what do you think people are getting out of seeing this movie? Uh, it's a fun movie. Who are not cinephiles I, and like looking at how we depict sex on screen, you know? No, I, it's I just think a lot of that fun. It's, it's a fun movie about about. Uh, I think it is a lot more. As I was saying at the start of the segment, um, it's a lot more honest and upfront about uh, broader relationship issues and incompatibilities yes, exactly, that exactly. all couples will face in one form or another than almost almost any other recent right. mainstream. Uh, romantic comedy drama, whatever you want to classify it as being. As, uh, as much as Judd Apatow wishes his movies were about honesty, uh, Fifty Shades <laughs> of Grey understands couples and being true and what that's all about. It does, much and better. it really, it really boils down to the fact that the whole movie and Patches said it well, saying that there are not uh, really any twists, and for the most part, that's true because it's really just about these characters being relatively upfront about who and what they are and trying to make themselves compatible with that out of a mutual interest that comes from very different places. And that's what the movie is. And DeLoe goes about it in a very heightened and often campily laughable way. <laughs> uh, I think it, it totally works. And I had forgotten while watching it that, like I, I understood that this was the first chapter in a trilogy, but I didn't know Doesn't that. Like it, really. Well, I didn't know that it wasn't a fully like it is a fully told story, but I didn't. It, it's a little bit more Lord of the Rings it ends on than a I right. But you know, it ends on a. It definitely ends on a. It also has a thread in it that plays well in this kind of this you know this single narrative. It works, but I'm really worried that in future sequels, this thread will get picked up and become something monstrous and horrible and just like really throws the whole series off. <laughs> I, uh, I, I summaries on Wikipedia and spoil yourself. Oh, I'm no. as skeptical about the next two installments of this as I was yes, before I saw exactly. this movie. And I think that uh, Sam Taylor Johnson is absolutely the right woman to direct it. Um, it's more just where the story goes that has me concerned. So you're going to see Fifty Shades of Grey? Katie, oh, I sold you? Oh, yeah, Katie. No, no. Oh, you're going to see it again, David? Uh, no, I'm going to see the next one <laughs> oh, okay. as soon as I possibly can. Actually, you took your that- girlfriend to this movie. I did. We should mention that. How, was- how was that experience? She, you know, she was like, yeah. Elisa, uh, like, does, show him how it's done. No, no she, she 
when she she I, I how to say it when she sees things on on like TV for example that like she doesn't like she gets like very she gets very angry and like there were moments in this movie that rubbed her the wrong way I could sort of see her stewing but we had a lively conversation about it afterwards I think that she enjoyed the experience I don't think that she holds it in quite as high regard as I do but I know that we both had fun seeing it at the Ziegfeld with a crowd of screen it was like seeing uh, Star Wars on at Comic Con I mean people were boosting their fucking mind yeah save it my, uh, save it my screening you, you saw it on a much bigger screen though and apparently it's also playing in IMAX that's, yeah. that's, that's amazing oh god talk about overcompensating if we were uh, a more daring podcast we all would have taken our respective partners and all gone to see Fifty Shades Grey with together them. like all holding hands oh god are you going to see it no with I your mean boy? with your man n- no I, I mean <laughs> I might like when the second one comes out should there be a second one and I guess there will be like by then it'll be on HBO and I might catch a little bit of it, but committing myself to paying to see it in theaters, I cannot possibly imagine doing that. You have to submit to this movie. You have yeah. to go all the way. It's not, you can't go a little bit. Don't bite your lip. I, oh, okay. All right. I won't bite my lip. I, I, I didn't know that was a lesson, but I, I've learned it now. You're being bad. Oh God. Oh, I don't like this. Correct and David's not here as we talk about Kingsman the Secret Service because of his uh, such professed loathing for Matthew Vaughn that I think he would refuse to see this movie and uh, routinely interrupt our conversation about it. If, uh... Although he was pining. <laughs> he's taking a break right now, now that he's exhausted himself from Fifty Shades of Grey. And, uh, but he is pining to see this movie because I told him that I have not really enjoyed a Matthew Vaughn movie. Maybe a little bit of Layer Cake, but I'm not really a kick-ass fan and I'm definitely not an X-Men uh, whatever that movie, First Class. I know that goes way against the grain. I'm in David territory by proclaiming that, but I'm not it's really crazy a craziness. Fan. Yeah, so but I was excited by Kingsman because uh, tease. I I liked it. Uh, so David <laughs> feels bad. He's feeling FOMO over not seeing it. And meanwhile, I cannot think of a single thing in Kingsman that I like better or that it all sets it apart from X Men to me, which is a movie that I like just fine and don't even necessarily remember all that well. Um, so it, it's, uh, I believe it's based on a comic book. And in some ways, it's kind of like an X-Men movie. You believe uh, it's based on a comic book? You're not quite it is, sure, right? but everything's based on a comic book at this point. Yes, it's based on a comic book called The Secret Service by I thought Mark I saw Millar. Mark Millar. Yeah, I was about to say, I thought I saw Mark Millar's in the credit the guy who wrote name in the credits. Yeah. And in some ways, it's kind of X-Men-y. Like this kid, he grows up in a working class kind of a, oh, what do they call them in a council flat in London. And then uh, he gets recruited by... This thing called the Kingsman, which is a secret, secret service. It's based out of a uh, tailor shop on, um, oh, God, uh, the street in London where everyone gets their suits from. Uh, Absolutely. Savile no Row. Yeah. Oh. Savile Row. Yeah. Fancy. See? It is very fancy. Uh, uh, and it's, um, it's Colin Firth is the guy who recruited him. He worked with the kid's father way back in the day. Um, he's inducted with this class of fellow kids in this training program. And there's kind of a series of exercises. And meanwhile, we see uh, Colin Firth's character in these kind of negotiations and series of spying on a uh, American tech billionaire played by Samuel L. Jackson, who's uh has a lisp for no reason really. And yeah. is wearing Google glass or like some futuristic. And he never uses us. it. 
Yeah, he never. As far does. as I can tell, he's wearing Google Glass without using it. He's just like, a douchebag. He's just a liberal tech douchebag, from all I can tell. Very American is yeah. the what oh, we're yeah. supposed to perceive there. Yeah, this movie. I think this movie hates everybody. Uh, it definitely at least hates Americans. It's uh in all uh, toward the end of the movie, you start getting uh, world leaders kind of involved in the villain's predictable scheme to take over the world. And uh, Obama is the only real world leader you encounter in the whole thing, which I thought was very telling somehow. Um, and this movie is slick and it's fine. And there's some action sequences that are fun. And, you know, my palms were sweating some of the time. Um, but then there's about a turning point halfway through the movie. And I don't I don't think we need to get a spoiler section of this or anything, but. Uh, there's a scene that's played for laughs and it's very elaborate and lovingly shot and it's very impressive technically that I thought just crossed this moral line and it was pretending that it didn't. It kind of tries to like reclaim itself and be like, well, you know, that was a, that was a terrible thing that happened and it's indicative of how bad our villain is, but it rejoices so much in what's happened in it. And I thought that two-facedness really said so much about the movie and so much about the way that, you know, it's a story about a working class kid pulling himself up and it really fetishizes the upper class and really hates poor people, even though it's pretending it does it. That I, I thought that baldness was so embarrassing and not hmm. self-aware at all that it really kind of wrecked the rest of the movie for me. It's not about climbing up from, you know, a low point in life. I mean, I guess it's saying that being in that low point of life is a bad thing. Yeah, it is. And it's it's like having it should be active overcome. Dis- it's having active disdain for anyone left in that low point of life. And I mean, the kid's mother we're still supposed to like care about but you really don't. Like, it's just really is ready to just brush off all of these working class people this kid grew up with, like dirt on the bottom of your shoe. And that's such like a vile way of addressing humanity. And it's something that, I mean, this happens in a lot of action movies where, like, you're watching The Avengers. Or the Avengers is a bad example because they actually uh, go out of their way not to have collateral damage. But, like, in Man of Steel, where you're like, Superman's beating the shit out of a. Uh, Oh, God, now I've forgotten his Zod. Zod, Jesus. And crashing in all these buildings, and you're supposed to care about it, and then all of a sudden people started saying, like, oh, yeah, there's people in there. You know, that was basically a mistake, but uh, Kingsman kind of has those moments, and you're just like, yeah, look at all these people. They're, you know, they're turning into zombies. This is crazy. And (coughs) there's never really a moment where you're supposed to feel bad about it. Like, you're just (laughs) rooting for a wholesale destruction. And even Kick-Ass, I thought, kind of managed to balance that in a way, like, to make it make kind of the amorality part of it. But the Kingsman is kind of trying to be this really straightforward, like Bond throwback thing where it's all about morality and gentlemanliness. But I thought when it lost track of that, I was like, you just really don't know what you're doing. Yeah, we should say that Sam Jackson's evil plotted here is He's basically Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> Elon Musk. I mean, he's Meets every... Steve Jobs. Yeah, he's every Silicon Valley guy and his evil plot is to put chips in everyone's cell phones because everyone's going to use them, you know? Everyone has a cell phone and that's going to turn people into zombies who want to kill each other. And he basically wants to save the planet. His whole goal is uh, global warming is a problem that no one's addressing and if politicians aren't going to do it let's kill everybody but the one percent and live and the the liberal one percent and and carry on with life with an intellectual life i guess you know it's so funny you're absolutely right that this movie is two-faced because it is trying to be this really kind of fun spy movie that we don't get a lot of you actually it has this meta quality, which I don't really appreciate as much as other people I've talked to. Um, similar to Kick-Ass, which has that meta quality about superheroes and comic books and comic book movies. This does the same for the spy genre. Sam Jackson has dinner with Colin Firth at some point, is like talking to him about spy movies. And you know, he's like, why can't spy movies be fun anymore? Uh, all these Bond movies are so serious now. Why can't they just be fun? And in a way, Kingsman 
the Secret Service really is like the best case scenario Roger Moore Bond movie. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, earlier this week uh, during our lightning round, I mentioned um, – actually, I don't know if that made it to air. But I mentioned The Man with the Golden Gun, the Roger Moore movie where he does this car stunt where Bond goes, have you ever heard of Evil Knievel? And then the car jumps off a ramp and does a, turly, a curly cue in the air and, with a slide whistle that actually goes whoop. Um, <laughs> Kingsman's not that silly, but it's pretty damn close. I mean, it's extravagant. It's crazy. They use all sorts of weird gadgetry. It's extremely colorful, like Matthew Vaughn's other movies. And it, it ends up being a lot of fun. It has some cool training montages, kind of like X-Men First Class. It has some good training montages. And Colin Firth and this kid, um, God, I'm, oh, looking, I'm trying to look up his name. but he, I never knew his name. So he that's doesn't even get on. billing on the poster. This kid is like so <laughs> unimportant, he, uh, but he is... <laughs> He's the main kid. He's There's, literally, literally, literally. I'm going to find out his name before the end of this segment. I <coughs> but the two of them are a lot of fun. I mean, I like the dynamic they have going of mentee and mentor and like bringing him into the fold and being classy while killing people and going on these spy missions. It's really goofy and it's really fun. But it is two faced. There's too much. There are too many politics going on in this movie by making Sam Jackson this kind of like crazed liberal guy and um, the extravagant violence they enact on each other. I mean, the scene you're describing with which is basically the massacre of a Westboro Baptist church. OK, so we are spoiling. It. I mean, I, I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that the West Baptist Church, Westboro Baptist Church gets the smackdown in this movie. Um because someone with amazing, you know, fighting skills gets to slaughter them all. Uh, it's going to happen because it's a Matthew Vaughn movie. They like violence, and Mark Millar especially. This is what they're all about, this extreme violence. But it doesn't really say anything about it. Like, watching these people claw at each other, I don't really get the commentary there. And I think Matthew no, Vaughn No, you're tell just you, supposed to like watching these people die because yeah. they're not good people, and therefore they deserve to die, which I think <laughs> is a crazy thing to assume. Right, and die in a style that you're like hooting and howling at. My jaw was on the floor during that scene because it is technically crazy. I mean, there's all sorts of camera zooms. It reminded me of what the Total Recall remake thought it was doing with that cool, like, camera zipping around the room, Colin Farrell shooting robots or whatever those things were. Um, this was so much cooler. This has a lot of, like, it's obviously CG enhanced, but Colin Firth makes it work. He has this certain swagger, and it really builds to this kind of climactic killing moment. Um, and you, and a lot of the fights do that. Early on, someone gets sliced in half with, like, uh, blades from this woman who has blade feet. Uh, oh, yeah. For absolutely yeah. no reason. I, don't I mean, yeah, I mean, that tells you the kind of realism we're dealing with here. Like, the woman with blade feet. Like, she runs around. It's like Oscar Pistorius, but with, like, actual blades that can right. kill you. And and Bond has that in its history, you know? Sure. There are scenes no from Bond movies where people, like, get thrown into ventilation and they, like, literally blow up. They expand and blow up. And it's very silly. And those scenes don't really make a lot of sense. And maybe you can still have that violence. But this was kind of, like, over a line. I'm not a prude, I don't think. I just was so shocked in its juxtaposition to the gleeful, bright color fun uh, of of the training and the other missions. And it's just so schizophrenic at times but i i actually i have to come on the side of, of of enjoying it on some level just because it really is the alternative to a lot of the spy movies we get it is a lot of fun it it even makes a get smart joke which tells you something like this is goofy this is funny um but not but not a spy comedy it's not austin powers 
Yeah. Oh, God. It would be so great if it was Austin Powers. What? Yeah, I love Austin Powers. Okay, I enjoy Austin Powers, too, but this is somewhere between Austin Powers and, you know, Quantum of Solace. I just named the worst Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. Everything is anything between (laughs) those two places. Hey, it's the end of the spectrum. It's too serious. But, yeah, I would rather it be more like Austin Powers. And, I mean, there are, like, moments like that scene where Samuel L. Jackson saying, like, well, I can't spy movies be fun anymore. Like, that feels like Austin Powers scenes. Like, like blatantly referencing the existence of James Bond. Like, that is basically doing that already. And in Austin Powers, there's violence and, like, there's surprising amounts of violence and when people are getting eaten alive by sharks. But it's funny. And in here, it's, like, because they had more money and because they had the budget to, like, make the scene where an entire church of people is tearing each other apart, like... They just had to do it, and they had to go really crazy to the point that you're, like, watching Colin Firth spear a woman through the face, even though she's, like, a zombie woman. She still looks like a regular woman. Like, And she and is, guess, actually. Yeah, I mean, she I, is a regular woman. And I guess it's, like, envelope pushing that we're, like, watching people kill zombies that look more human. And But, like, I don't need that envelope pushed in that direction. Like, I'd so much rather have interestingly choreographed one-on-one fight scenes, which you get a couple of, like, especially in the very beginning of the movie. Where you've got the you know the first Kingsman agent that you meet, and he uh, faces off against the uh, <coughs> against various thugs, and the Blade Woman shows up. Like that's really interesting. It has good jokes, and there's a martini or no a, a glass of scotch that's getting passed around. It never gets spilled. Like that really is the tone of this movie that I think it's mostly going for. And then they just kind of get greedy and go bigger, and it gets kind of stomach churning. Yeah, this whole movie is about looking good in your suit while mm-hmm. accomplishing these missions, and it doesn't have much grace. In that way. No. Um, Colin Firth does, though. And that's what that's the strength of this movie. That's why I ultimately come on the on the positive side, because I think Colin Firth is really good as this kind of classic spy. He still kind of seems like he's in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. (laughs) Um, He is the classic Bond figure, uh, but he is capable of beating up an entire bar of thugs. Um, and then, so this kid, Taryn Edgerton, yes, I've learned his name there in the go. last few minutes. Um, I just thought he was kind of extraordinary. Really? <laughs> I, I really dug what he was dishing out, which is a lot of like looking at staring and things. But he has comedic moments and action moments that seem to play side by side in a way that a lot of more mature performers don't. I think this is one of his first movies. But there's a great bit in the movie, like this training montage where all the potential kingsmen have to raise dogs um they Mm -hmm. need a companion and he is he doesn't know much about class because he comes from the lower class yes that is is so stupid garbage that's so against everything this movie is about and it makes these parodies of like the really posh guys who are like obviously the villains like in any prep school movie um they're basically sweep the leg johnny guys uh, yeah exactly But then again, like the movie really sides with them and their point of view. Like it would much rather be posh and rich than be from a council flat. Right. But I mean, what is it? Yeah, that's the complex part because he has this evolution into a Kingsman, into a proper Mm -hmm. fellow. Um, But he's still himself. So is the movie saying something about that? And and. Taron Edgerton does a very good job of being both of those at the same time. I mean, when he finally gets to become, I mean, I think people will realize it's inevitable that he becomes a Kingsman. He, what? Or at least he has to, at least he has to go on a Kingsman mission. At least this isn't called Kingsman Origins. That is, oh God. <laughs> Why is it, it's, uh, it annoys me that it's called Kingsman and not Kingsmen. The Secret oh, Service. that's true. It's just one Kingsman, the Secret Service. Yeah, the it's Secret called Service X-Men. is clearly multiple. Uh, I don't know. Oh, and oh, we didn't even talk about how they're called Galahad and Lancelot. That was embarrassing. 
Yeah, they're all uh, and uh, Merlin. Mark Strong plays Merlin, who's like Mark the Strong t- once again, uh, incredible, incredible. And he has is it an Irish accent that he has for no oh, reason really? at all. I don't know. He's doing some kind of accent. He and Samuel L. Jackson are both doing a voice just because they can. I guess I don't I know. I mean, that's why Sam Jackson did a voice. Because he, he was <laughs> so like, "Can I do can. a list this time?" And they're like, "Sure." But really, I mean, the performances here are strong. I think Terry Hatcher is they a are. physical actor. I think he has. Uh, a, a suave side to him that can kind of dish out the jokes. He can be that pensive brute from every English indie film. You know, he's basically playing fish tank, but in a Matthew Vaughn action movie for part of this. And, and about a dude, which is the point of fish tank that is not about a dude. Okay, fair. I mean, male fish tank, bro tank, um, drunk Z- tank. Boring. I mean, even like I even like Sam Jackson in this movie, like being super silly. At least it's so to broad. Broader than Nick Fury, if you thought such a thing was possible. Yeah. I mean, hmm. Sam I mean, it's a broad movie. Be... Like it doesn't need I mean, even Colin Firth is being broad in his own way. They're all broad. They're not speaking of which, they're not a lot of women. No, oh yeah. And the one there female one. character She's like the one girl who's in the thing, and she's like she's tougher than everybody else. But then, of course, in the final action scene, she like has her one mission that gets her out of everything, and she doesn't get to do anything fun. That's true. She does not get to. She doesn't get around to be. Uh, she's not around for the final beats, and I won't spoil the final beat. But it is a throwback to Bond sexuality that um, did not really work for me. Not a great way to go out at the end of this movie. Yeah, that's uh, like that. That there was a line of dialogue that led up to that that I thought really <laughs> summed up the childishness of this movie. Somehow it's more. It's grosser than anything in Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it's teenage male fantasy. Oh, it's come awful. to life. It's really and awful. Yeah, and the, like there are just parts like this that. This whole like, thing last... is teenage male fantasy. Come I know, and I and Kickass is the same thing too. But I thought Kickass was like engaging and funny and interesting, and like not even just that it had Hit Girl in it, but just that it didn't feel quite so like all purpose hateful. Like this movie just doesn't like anybody. Yeah, it's disappointing because it's a I think Matthew Vaughn is kind of competent behind the camera. Um, he just... I do too! I think he gets lost or, or stuck up his own ass in being rebellious. He can't make a classically styled picture. It has to go to extremes to be like, we're not just going to be the alternative to what the norm is out there. We are going to be the furthest point on a spectrum. And it can be very aggravating at times. It can be very enjoyable at times. It's 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 a mixed bag, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be positive on this. What about you, Katie? I mean, I like I think... I don't know. I might see it again and kind of be prepared for this scene that I keep complaining about and maybe be able to get past it a little bit. But it did feel like it tipped its hand in a way to the hollowness of this movie, and I couldn't quite stop seeing it, despite all the parts of it that I kind of enjoyed or even, like, you know, groaned but also enjoyed at the same time. Like, it's that kind of movie. And there's, if you like inventive action sequences, I mean, there's a lot of really fun stuff going on in there. And I can't say that, like, when you get to the end and they're, you know, running through a snow bunker and all of this total nonsense stuff, there's like a pleasure in that. Yeah. And no spaceship hovers over a city for the finale. So that was nice. That's true. Only like a jet, <laughs> there's a jetpack involved again, just like mm-hmm. I don't know what Malar and Vaughn love about jetpacks. I guess they're kind of cool. I mean, yeah, I want a jetpack. Here's the really. Uh, I'm the girl, so I'd have to get. A jet. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're off in space. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, the real, the real final note here. What I, what I gained most from Kingsman is, is a sense of fashion. And I, I have to say, two oh yeah, rules here. Even if you do, says Mister Esquire. <laughs> yes, that's true. I'm, I'm learning about fashion now. And, and one thing is, you never buy a suit off the peg. 
you must buy a off bespoke. Bes- no, off the peg. Off the well, peg. I know, but off the rack is what we say in America. Well, I'm trying to be more like a Kingsman because Americans are slovenly and ignorant. <laughs> so you buy it off the peg. And um, the important rule here is Oxford uh, not – wait, what is it? Oxford, uh, Oxford's not brogues. Not brogues. Oxford not brogues. So when you're yeah. buying shoes, gentlemen, Oxford not brogues. lightning round question yes it was in honor of the king's Man. what is your favorite um action comedy scene uh david what's your pick uh i'm gonna go with brian zitzelman at brian zitzelman who says the glorious fist fight that closes porco rosso it, it is truly glorious and it does close porco rosso every part of that sentence was accurate <laughs> i just how about you uh, I am going to go with at Zach underscore Acres and say the ending mall fight in Observe and Report, a movie I don't think about enough. And what happened to Jody Hill? I want yeah. more movies from Jody Hill. Didn't I guess he, busy hasn't doing he HBO been television. doing? Yeah, yeah, he's been doing uh, Eastbound and Down this whole time. He's been doing Eastbound and Down. And now he's doing another series with Danny McBride on HBO called Vice Principals. Apparently, hey, they're going to be Vice Principals this time. It's crazy. Um, I'm going with Nick Rob, who says uh, Adventures of Tintin, single take chase. Awesome, That's such a great scene. That Is movie. Is Tintin a movie you'll ever watch again? I mean, I loved it in the theater, but and I think it's I even on watched, Netflix. Maybe I saw it twice I, in theaters. It's, I have not so watched good, it since, but I don't often rewatch things. So uh, is, yeah, fair. I feel like that feels like something you would show your kids, you know. Although maybe by then it'll look so outdated that. Uh, they won't be interested. They'll be ready for the sequels that are finally getting made. Yeah, like, the, the, by the time we all have children, they, the sequels might exist. I'm going to have kids just to show them Tintin and Fifty Shades. <laughs> and uh, the inevitable Lord of the Rings remakes or some oh such. God. Uh, God. Okay, that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week talking about things. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer for Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm David Ehrlich. I am the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor at large of Little White Lies. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Time Out US Film. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. I'm sorry I coughed so much in this episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. 